Welcome to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted we're spending this time here today. We have a very inspiring show coming right up with special guest, Officer Steve Redman. And he's here today to share with us his story and his nonprofit, Code 4 Northwest. So who do our first responders call when they need help? Have you ever thought about that? I was watching recently an A&E series, Addictions Unplugged, and came across this segment that Steve was so candid in and had to have him on the show. I'm so delighted he's here to share not only his experience with us today, but his hope and also his nonprofit, Code 4 Northwest. So let's welcome to the show, Officer Steve Redmond. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, what an honor it is to have you here, and I want to thank you for all that you've done for our communities and continue to do, and for all of your service. I mean, you are the epitome of a hero. Uh, thank you. It, uh, I just I just do what I feel needs to be done because of you know the issues that are out there and, and things that are preventable, what I've experienced in my life, and so it's my way of giving back. Well, I'm so glad that we've connected I came across you on an A&E series, Addiction Unplugged, where it really went into your story. And, you know, of course, we don't have as much time to go through everything here today, but I encourage our listeners to check that out and uh, look at that, um, that segment. So, you know, your story, I mean, gosh, I mean, you, you started in law enforcement in Spokane. I did. Yeah. Spokane, Washington. I, uh, as I was going to college, I became a reserve police officer and <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, loved it. And, but, you know, even though going to college and reserve is you're unpaid and I would put in 20 to 30 hours a week working patrol and just fell in love with the job. And then later on, you went to go work full-time with Seattle PD, right? And you were yes. with them. Yeah, I got hired by Seattle in 1992 after I graduated college, tested all around in Seattle. I got hired by them and uh, started my career with them and I'm still currently with them. So you pretty much worked every aspect um, in Seattle PD from what I understand. I mean, you were a DUI officer, motorcycle officer. You, You did just pretty much everything. Yeah, and that's the benefit of a larger agency like Seattle. I was able to do patrol, field training officer, mountain bike units, uh, the uh, DUI squad, traffic cars. Then I did motorcycles. Now I'm currently the safety officer for the department. And I've been there for about four years. And they asked me to kind of take over that spot because it would also kind of free me up so I could do more peer support work with uh, fellow officers within Seattle PD. So as, as you're going, cause you were with, yeah, and you still are, but you had a 20 year, um, you were with the, the Seattle PD for 27 years from what yeah. I understand. Yes. So during the time that you're doing this, I mean, you're kind of experiencing a lot and I'd love for you to share with our listeners just what that was like. Cause I don't think people really understand what our first responders go through when they respond to a call. Well, the whole aspect of what we do is like we are always walking into the unknown. And so and we always have to have the mindset that whatever or whoever we're dealing with wants to hurt us in some way. And so we, it kind of puts us in this what we call the hypervigilant state where we have to 
do certain uh, procedures to ensure our safety, but also ensure the safety of people that we're dealing with. And so it just kind of puts us in that mind state. And then the type of calls that we go on and the the traumas that we experience uh, may not be our own personal trauma, like uh, an officer-involved shooting, but it's experiencing other people's traumas. And that's called what I call secondary trauma, and in which we're not experiencing the trauma, but we are experiencing other people's traumas um, as far as watching, listening to them, looking at it, having to deal with the families, having to deal with the victims, having to deal with that. And so, you know, the the we, we see things in our careers that, that, that people, you know, regular citizens, um, should, will never see in their lifetime. And if they do maybe once, but we see it on a continual basis and that accumulative effect of, of these traumas and what we experience in this hypervigilance starts to add up and it starts to kind of have this, this cascade effect where you start putting the blocks on top of each other and on top of each other until at some point you just get overwhelmed. Yeah. That, that um, place where you get to that overwhelm, I mean, it's, it's like, what do you do then? Because I'm sure many first responders, they don't want to go and talk to a doctor or nurse because then that could affect their job. It could. And in some states, yes, it could have a major impact on their job. So they just have to keep it to themselves, even though they're struggling. And uh, fortunately, like where I work in Washington State, they're pretty proactive here as far as getting the mental health uh, aspect uh, uh, or getting people help for their mental health. And so what it, it, it the problem is, is this, and to be completely blunt, is that it's pride and ego. And that's what kept me from getting help for so long was pride and ego. And it's that pride of, you know, the culture is you're weak if you ask for help because put your pull your big boy britches up and deal with the job because that's what you signed on for and deal with it. This is part of the job. And so it was always looked down upon anybody asking for help and it was a sign of weakness and you never wanted to have that you know moniker and and in the old days you could go to your departmental psychologist and say god i'm really struggling i'm stressed out i'm um you know went to this call and they're saying okay yeah great we'll, we'll help you but in the meantime give us your badge and gun we're going to put you on desk duty and what we used to call the rubber gun squad and then it's like it's no longer confidential because everybody knows you are having some sort of an issue. You may not know exactly what, but nobody wanted to go through that. And so uh, it, it boils down to a lot of those factors where it's pride and ego, the sign of weakness, the culture. And so it's basically, uh, you know, just uh, deal with a buttercup and more or less. And, uh, um, and that doesn't work. Well, and, and the thing is, is from, you know, what I've seen, what I've read from your website and with the, the series, it was really interesting because, I mean, our respond, our first responders are going through PTSD. They're having all this stress that they carry with them, and they're looking for that out. Well, they are. 
And the problem is, is, you know, if you're considering they're looking for an out as far as help or what type of out are you talking about there? Well, um, I'm more so, yeah, because I, I mean, that kind of left the door wide open there, but more so where they're trying to relieve the stress and kind of unwind or unload from what they've been through through that day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's you get home from your shift. And if it was a bad shift, you end up a lot of times just isolating from your family or friends. And and uh, there's a great uh, uh, doctor out there, Dr. Gil Martin, who talks about, you know, the hypervigilance. But then you come home, you sit in a big red chair and you just sit there. And that's why you'll just binge watch TV or you'll sit on a video game or you'll just disappear or you, you'll come home and you'll you know, be so stressed out that you need something to kind of help medicate that. So you'll have something to drink. And then as things get worse, that could progress into uh, substance abuse. Doesn't necessarily have to be alcoholism, but it could progress into substance abuse and um, or alcohol abuse, especially. And uh, that's a real thing. A lot of people come home and have a couple of drinks, just unwind. and. Um, which is if it doesn't have a negative impact on your life and you're still interacting with your family, still interacting with friends and you're not, you know, it doesn't have that negative impact. Then that's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's when it starts to have that negative impact and you basically start to isolate and no longer are doing what you used to do that you enjoy doing. But I used, what I call, I I had the used to's. I used to do this. I used to do that. Now I don't do anything. I just come home and sleep and just watch TV and sit on the couch and, you know, whatever. And that's where it gets to be the bad part is, you know, they're looking for that escape and that's their coping mechanism. At what point through your journey did you decide, hey, I think I might have a problem. I need to really look at this. Well, there are a lot of red flags when I was starting my journey and my journey still continues to this day. I mean, it's, um, and we can get into that here in a bit, but, um, the, uh, it really started to where, you know, I always was a guy with the high, high tolerance. And my friends used to joke that, well, when Steve gets drunk, then we better quit drinking. Cause that means we've had a lot. And, uh, then, uh, like, I did talk about during the episode, uh, a bunch of my friends and I back in the day when you could do this, that you could, we went out for, we took a half a shift off. We all went out and just kind of went down to our local uh, bar row that we patrol and sat down there and drank and came back up and see what we could uh, see what our, you know, BAC was and blood alcohol level. And uh, yeah, I was high which I thought I was going to be pretty low because I was in better shape than all of them, at least physically. Uh, and the way uh, I was behaving and acting. And that was the red light that came on. And uh, it, it's then I knew that I, I, I had an issue, but I didn't want to deal with it. Well, and at that time, like, how could you? You know, because you really kind of developed your own resource at this point, you know, right. to, to help people. Well, that was the thing, too, is where do you turn to? 
where do you go? I could Google best treatment centers in the country right now. And the ones that are going to pop up are the ones that make that are spending the most money to be the first ones to pop up. Does that mean they're the best treatment center? No, it doesn't. And so there is this, this whole notion of who do you turn to? My family didn't know her to, who to turn to because they, they saw what was happening. They, they saw that I was starting to spiral down and who do they turn to? And, um, and unbeknownst to me, as I was starting to really spiral down, my wife for about six to seven months was going to Al-Anon and I had no idea. And uh, because she knew something was there, she just didn't know what to do either. So she started going to Al-Anon. And that is one of the reasons why the organization like Code 4 is so can be so important is because we vet the resources. We know the best treatment centers that are out there. And we find the best fit for the person, not based on, you know, we don't get paid by anybody put anybody into treatment because we're 100% all volunteer. We get no, quote, kickbacks or anything, which is completely unethical. It's, hey, how do we find the best fit for the person so they don't have to try to do the research, get put through the ringer by a place that may not be good, and that then we kind of become their advocate and get them to the best place possible based on what they're presenting. Oh, I think that's such a huge resource. And I, you know, it, it was heartbreaking listening to your story, but also it provided a lot of hope and it was really cur- encouraging as well because, I mean, you had some really dark times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I have, uh, I suffer from a delayed onset of PTSD because in that episode, we talk about, okay, yeah, I have this PTSD accumulative trauma. But one thing is, um, a lot of the therapists didn't want to deal with my underlying childhood trauma. And a lot of first responders who have PTSD have a lot of childhood trauma. Most trauma places that are good trauma place or trauma facilities that do good trauma work will focus on 15 years and younger as far as looking at traumas. And um, I did have a, a meltdown again because I and I'm upfront about this, and I speak about this as conferences. I was molested as a as a uh, kid, and um, uh, and not by my parents. Just put that out there, or anything like that, or you know. But uh, nobody ever dealt with that, and then that started to surface up again. And I wasn't able to deal with it until I went into I put myself into another program that dealt with those traumas, and it's Deer Hollow Recovery Center in Utah which I went through there and I got over 240 hours of just trauma work. And it was incredible. It changed my life and to where I got to be truly happy, healthy, and able to move on with my life. And um, that's what a lot of things people don't realize is this, this trauma aspect um, doesn't necessarily have to be work trauma. That can trigger some things. But a lot of times it's childhood stuff that we didn't know was even there. And um, it doesn't have to be like what I went through, but it could be other traumas. And um, that anything that causes a spiritual, emotional, or physical pain can be considered a trauma. And so 
it was a good educational process for me because I thought I knew about PTSD and I go around the country and I speak at conferences about PTSD. But honestly, after I went through this program down at Deer Hollow, I had no clue of what it truly is and then truly how, how to get the tools to, to combat its effects. Because it's always there. It's never going away. But you can control the effects of it. Wow. I, I just applaud you for your courage because, I mean, a lot of people go through childhood trauma and it's still kind of this taboo topic of, you know, to talk about, even though it's being discussed more now than it was 20 years ago. And thank goodness for that. You know, but to have that compounded with workplace trauma, I mean, it, it, I can understand when people start to come a little unraveled at the seams because it's just so much. Yeah, I mean, because you can look at two people who are dealing with the same trauma. One person is just fine going through that trauma, doesn't have much of an impact on them. Then the other person may start to fall apart because of it. Well, there's a reason for that. And is it from the childhood? Is it the accumulative effect? Is it something going on at home they can relate to, whatever? But that's where you get a good therapist and good therapy can get to the bottom of it and kind of figure that out and then work on that again like i said to give you the tools to be able to combat that to get you beyond that so when it does may possibly come up again the 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 memories are still there the feelings might still be there they just don't have the effect anymore yeah it's not what's really in charge you're more in charge of being able to deal with that situation or those emotions that are coming up, you know, and it's in your story on Annie, you shared about how you got to a point where you were actually contemplating suicide and how your wife was really the hero that day. Yeah. Yeah. And so, no, I, I was, I was to the point of where I was, yeah, completely done. Brain was done. And I, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, uh, by the grace of God, uh, she just happened to call. She'd be in a flight nurse, um, and usually can't call cause she's out flying and, um, just happened to call at that exact, exact moment in time. So if you want to call it and believe in it, but I believe that was a God shot. And, um, oh, yeah. I, I put the gun away, went in, set my living room and, uh, uh, unlocked the front door because I knew the fire department was coming. I know they like to kick in doors. And so I didn't want them to do that to me. <laughs> so I just uh, unlocked the door, sat in the living room. And they walked in and I just looked at them and says, I don't know what to do. I need help. And they were great. And uh, they took me to the hospital. Yes, I was a, a mental patient. You know, I spent just uh, about four or five hours there at the hospital. But uh, had to talk to the social worker there. And then a friend of mine who showed up as a therapist, and he got me in touch with somebody who does deal with secondary trauma. So that's how I started on that road of learning about secondary trauma is because of the people that responded there who, you know, my wife had to make one phone call. And I had eight people around my bed. And that's why I created the tagline with Code 4 Northwest, one call a community of support. Um, is because you make one phone call, we can rally as many people as we need around you 
and um, like I said, in support, not judgment. How encouraging that is, because especially as a first responder, I mean, it's tough enough going through that type of a situation, I would, you know, would think, and then not to have the best people there would, would really be heartbreaking. Well, and it's the whole embarrassment factor, you know, and guilt and shame. And um, it's, that's, that's a driving force too of what keeps people from getting help is that guilt, shame, embarrassment. I don't want anybody to know I'm struggling. And because in the culture and really across society, if, if you have another illness, like say MS, people are like, oh man, that's too bad, you know, whatever. You say, I got, you know, a mental health issue or I've got an addiction issue, then they look at it in a different light. And that's kind of what needs to change. And so if that's what you're dealing with, you know that. And uh, it gets treated differently. And so uh, the, the deal, though, is anybody who I've worked with and I've helped about, well, thousands of people who have dealt with addiction or mental health issues, and they take the, the positive step to improve their life by getting help, I've never seen any negative uh, outcome of it if they're proactive and do it before things get super bad. Mm-hmm. Well, I think anyone, if they were at their place of employment and had this type of stuff show up, there is that level of embarrassment and, and shame that would go with that because that's where you, that's where you work, you know, and I, I can only imagine that it's even compounded being a first responder because, you know, there's this, this image that, you know, these are the people that we're relying on and they're tough as nails all the time when they're, you know, we're all human. Yeah. I had a smart person tell me one time that pride cometh before fall. If you can't swallow your pride, you're going to go down. And especially when you're dealing with, with mental health issues, such as addiction, PTSD, um, your, and people call it PTSD. And I'd like to just throw this out there. It's really, now a lot of people are calling it PTSI. It's post-traumatic stress injury. It is an injury to the brain that can be fixed. But when you put the disorder on it, that sounds worse. And so uh, a lot of the uh, professionals in the field are, are switching and calling it PTSI. So that's another aspect because it kind of takes some of that 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 negative connotation away from it in a That's sense, but it, yeah. yeah, but it truly is an injury to the brain. And so, um, but it's, it's really the bottom line is that, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is help out there. Uh, the person just has to take the steps to do it. And it's nothing to be ashamed of, to feel guilty about. It's, it's part of our job, honestly. I mean, to deal with, with, post-traumatic stress is truly part of our job and uh it's it's yeah we signed on for it but you know it doesn't mean that we have to sit there and just reap the repercussions of the negative consequences that had occur because of the nature of our job and what we deal with and this goes across the board of all first responders not just police but fire and uh ems and nurses especially like icu nurses and er nurses and all these people i mean it's it's part of the nature and but there's solutions 
I was surprised to hear some of the stats of how our first responders are suffering from, you know, job-related stress so much higher than the general population. Right. And like I said, that's because of the nature of our job. But we're, you know, we're, we're hired on to deal with the worst that society has to offer. And what, what the general public does not nor should have to deal with. That's our job. And so we, we see people at their worst moments in their life and we see the worst things that society has to offer and that's, and, and it's prolonged. So it's not just one, two, three, four years. You know, I'm in my 27th year. We do this job for 20 to 30 years. And so that, that accumulative effect of, of seeing these things, it adds up. There's no way around it. It just is. And that's, that's just nature at work and your brain at work and your, your, your brain and all your trauma goes into your amygdala and your amygdala is only so big. And at some point the amygdala says, ah, hell no. And starts dumping. And when it dumps, it doesn't dump well. At what point did you start code for Northwest? 2013. We went live October of 2013. And when you started doing that, who do you have manning the phones and, and being there to accept the calls that come in? So we have, we're hundred percent all volunteer. And so we have other police officers, firefighters, current, former, retired. Uh, we have uh, dispatchers. We have park enforcement officers. We have admin people who work in the, in the industry, like work for police departments or fire departments. Uh, we've got Homeland security, uh, I've got border patrol. It's people who just want to volunteer to give back because they want to help. And a lot of these people have gone through their own, uh, own issues and have recovered. And so they just want to help others. So other people can maybe learn from them and be there. And, and, um, and like I said, they're just there because they want to give back and help and, and hopefully not have people suffer and like the suicides that occur all across the country is maybe we can start reducing those. Gosh, that would be a blessing, you know, to give people the help that they need, like you're doing and also kind of get them to a point where they're not feeling so hopeless. Right. I mean, that's, that's not a good place to be in. No, no, it's, it's, it's an awful place. And I've, I've been there and it's, you feel like you're on your own little Island. You feel that you can keep it together until you can't keep it together. And so it's, uh, it's a, it's a hard place to be because uh, bad things will happen. Now, do you have treatment centers all across the U S that you work with? I do. Yes. And we, we work with the select number. Um, however, because of my contacts that, that code four is generated across the country. So if we have somebody that calls and, and, you know, our facilities aren't going to be a good fit, maybe because of financial or it, you know, uh, or what they're presenting, the context I have is we've yet not to be able to find a place for the person to go to. Mm-hmm. And so, and we've, the facilities that, that 
Code 4 users, we've been down to visit, have seen them firsthand. I won't refer anybody to a facility, usually, uh, unless it's just a worst-case scenario that I have to, that I haven't been down to or somebody in my in my um, organization hasn't been down there to visit and talk to the clinical staff, see the facilities, see what it is, and uh, to make sure that they're actually saying what they are. And it's not just, you know fluff that they're telling you they're the best thing since sliced bread and and then we reevaluate if we do send somebody to a place and they have a bad experience we figure out why that was was it the person was it the facility and if the facility isn't up to what they say they will or what they are we won't use them anymore well that's good it seems that you really are vetting this so well to make sure that the first responders get the best options possible yeah yeah, I, I truly believe we have, and most of our facilities are on the West Coast since we deal with Washington, Idaho, Oregon, but I sometimes get calls from California, Texas, Florida, what have you, and um, then we have the ability to place people in other facilities that have been vetted by um, um, others that we trust, and they say, yeah, it's good. And they do this and that. And so we can always, we always have options to find, find solutions for people. And that's what we work through. Now, are the calls confidential? If someone needs to, you know, who's a first responder needs to make a call, where do they go? It's 100% confidential. Yeah, we're covered under an RCW revised code of Washington law from the state of Washington that says uh, first responders who call our line, it's 100% confidential. We don't give out any information to anybody. That's very encouraging. That way they're not worried about how this is going to impact their life and their job. Right. Yep. And so they can they can call and talk. And they said it is it is a confidential call. And um, it's they don't have to worry about us saying anything to their agency or what have you that they can get answers and then figure out. And sometimes I work with them on if I know the agency and I've had experience with them, then we'll work with them as far as, okay, this is the steps you want to take to help protect yourself. You know, most places have FMLA and Family Medical Leave Act to help protect them. But some places, you know, are still way behind the times and people have to be very careful on how they approach things. And uh, we do have HIPAA protection and things along those lines. But, um, you know, the biggest, the biggest question I get is, how is this going to impact my job? And most of the time when people are reaching out, unfortunately, there's already been some issue at work or, or something that, that has triggered this. And so um, it, it's a matter of, you know, it's kind of like going out for knee surgery. Most of the time you don't have to tell your agency why you're going out sick. And if you're going in for post-traumatic stress treatment, it's HIPAA protected. It's a medical issue. And so it's, it's, you just have to tell them I'm going to be gone for a while and I'll get a doctor's note to come back, but you should never have to tell them why. Oh, that's good. They deserve to have our first responders deserve to have our support and our protection, especially when it comes to their job and they're looking for help. Yes. Agreed. 
without a doubt. Where could, uh, if we have first responders that are listening now and they need help, what is a number that they would call? Well, for if you're in Washington, Idaho, Oregon, uh, it would be 425. And let's see here, 425-243-5092. And then one thing I'll do here, and then there's a national hotline that does, uh, uh, it's a, uh, they do vetted resources. And let me pull them up. I don't have their number, but I'll pull them up here real quick. But they're on Facebook. It's the Institute for Responder Wellness. And they're based out of Florida, but uh, I trust them. And they also vet the resources, especially around uh, kind of east of the Rockies. And they're a, they're a good resource as well. And awesome, yeah, good to have you know resources on both sides of the country. You know, I know you cover quite a bit all over. But, you know, if someone says, hey, I, I think I want to reach out to someone in Florida, you know, yeah. they have that resource available. Yeah, and they, they, they do the same thing that we do. They, they vet resources. They're not a crisis line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, we're more of a crisis line response referral service. And that's one reason why I keep it Washington, parts of Idaho, Oregon, is because we can vet every resource in that region. Around the country, I could, I have all the uh, treatment centers vetted, and we don't mind taking calls for somebody who needs treatment. We have those vetted, but counselors and therapists, we don't have those uh, outside of our, our region. I mean, we can help find them, but we haven't been able to vet them. Is, is So um, that Institute for Responder Wellness does have another database that deals with uh, the rest of the country. Now, let's say, because a lot of times people will save up their vacation or use the um, Family Act to go ahead and and address this. Do you have people that will actually fly in from out of state to, to see specific counselors? And it kind of keeps a little bit more private. No, not from because a lot of insurance insurances, unless they're private pay, will not do that because of the cost okay. and, and because of licensing. However, like for say if I'm dealing with somebody in Washington, I send 99% of my people out of the state for treatment mm-hmm. um, because uh, I feel there's better treatment centers in uh, other states that really focus on first responders, focus on trauma. And because um, and a lot of places will say that, oh yeah, we deal with trauma. Yeah, we're dual diagnosis, you know, co-occurring disorder. And they may get one uh, one therapy session uh, a week for 45 minutes with a therapist. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really dealing with trauma. Whereas like I went down to Deer Hollow Recovery outside of Salt Lake City and I said 40 plus hours a week was just trauma work. They could deal with substance abuse, but it was just trauma work and intense trauma work. And they get down to the nitty gritty and, and they specialize in first responders. And my belief, they're one of the better treatment centers in the country when it deals with first responders and trauma or just trauma in general. It sounds like they really get to that core issue because yeah. that's what everything else is kind of kind of stacked on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they get to it. 
they they really peel things open and then they kind of put you back together and then give you the tools so that when you leave, you know how to handle things. Mm-hmm. And and uh, they, they do a really impressive job. How can the community um, either support or donate to Code Four Northwest? Well, they can go to our uh, website, and that's uh, www.code4nw.org. And there's a donation page, and so they can donate in there. And that's how we operate. We operate off donations, and all the money that comes in goes back out for trainings, and we do a lot of peer support trainings. And then also scholarships, and we've given out, we're up to probably about $40,000 we've given out this year just in scholarships to help people if they have a financial need, just to get them through the doors. Mm-hmm. And so we, I, I believe in trying to take that financial barrier out of the picture, so then there's no excuse. Yeah, and then they can focus on their recovery. Yep. Yeah. So people can, can do credit card or they can send checks in there, but it's, it's, that's, that's how we, we continue operating, keep the phone lines open and everything else. Then we do, uh, you know, one big fundraiser year that we're doing this year on October 26th. And, and, you know, that just gives us our operating budget for the next year. And then donations that come in truly do help. But they said it, it, it doesn't go in anybody's pocket or whatever, uh, and all the money that comes in goes right back out to operating and to get people where they need to be and the trainings that they need. I'm telling you, Steve, you are a hero to so many. I mean, you just not only to our community, but to our first responders. I mean, my goodness, what an astounding organization you have. Well, thank you. As people say, oh, you save lives, you know, you do this. And I, I'm a firm believer, and people correct me when I say this, but this is my thought process. I don't save lives. I give people the opportunity or solutions so they can save their own life because they've got to do the work. Mm-hmm. And and that's it. It's just I've, I've done the work to be able to get good solutions, good options, and it's up to them to take it or not. And we'll help them however we can, uh, but we're not going to do the work for them. That's true. It's it's a, a personal job, but you give them the opportunity to have that. Well, Steve, my goodness, I mean, we can talk about this all day. I'm, I'm so glad that we have been able to spend this time together to talk about your organization. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. Oh, no, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's a, it's an honor and any chance we get to kind of let people know that, hey, there, there's there's solutions out there. You just got to look and uh, you don't need to struggle. Then I'm all for that and whatever we need to do to help spread that message. And, uh, you know, it's it's that's that's why we're here and more people. I'd love to see more people get involved and more states even start what I started with Code 4 and starting to do their own thing. And um, just so, you know, because it, it's all the all these issues are solvable. It's just when you're in the issue, you just can't see that the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And so sometimes you just need to be kind of taken by the hand and guided around to where you can see like, oh, OK, it's scary. But wow, thank God I did it. 
Um, and there's the opportunity to do with people that you can trust too, which is a big thing. It's not somebody who's just, you know, answering the phones. I mean, as you said, when we first started our discussion, it's, you know, it's other first responders who are actually picking up that phone and, and helping. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's perfect. And so, yeah, it's, you know, whatever we can do and, um, you know, we're a small little group, but we do impact a lot of people and we're just here to try to help. And if we can't help somebody, we'll try to find them other options that maybe can they can turn to to uh, get the help they need. Well, Officer Steve Redman, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show, not only to be so candid about your story, but to share with us what our first responders go through. With that awareness, we can also help And of course, you want to see about donating to Code 4 Northwest. Their website is code4nw.org for more information. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. You're listening to Moments with Marianne. And remember, make every moment count. single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Marianne airs every Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.